0: Welcome to The Manifest, a podcast all about package management. My name's Alex Pounds. And I'm Andrew Nesbitt. And together, we're exploring the technical details of package management,
1: the stories and the history of various projects, and the communities around them too. Today, we're joined by Kate Stewart, Senior Director of Strategic Programs at the Linux Foundation. Kate, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to chatting
1: with you guys. Kate, okay, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the nitty-gritty of open source licensing?
2: So I picked up my master's in computer science in the eighties, so I've been around for a long time. And from there was I guess working in Australia for six months and doing my my effective walkabout before going back to Canada and uh, worked for IBM for several years after that. At IBM, I was working on optimizing compilers, so paying attention to a lot of little details and making sure you get things right in terms of generating assembly. After IBM, I moved down to the States into Austin and was working at a startup for a couple of years and decided, yeah, I probably wanted to get a green card. And yeah, the company I was with wasn't going to get me one. <laughs> so I started working at Motorola in their compiler group. All of this stuff from IBM and Motorola is pretty much on the power architecture and PowerPC. When my our manager left, I ended up being the logical choice to take his spot. I.e. Everyone else hated the job more than me. And so I ended up being a manager, and that was sort of the start for me of the intro into the licensing side of it, especially when we wanted to try to get our patches upstreamed to the GCC. So I basically learned how to do the copyright assignments and then worked with the lawyers and got them educated as to the implications and had some lovely little learning exercises for a silicon company to understand open source a bit. We got the copyright assignments in, and then, of course, less than a year later, Motorola became Freescale, at least my part of it did. And so I had to go through the whole exercise all over again with another set of lawyers. We also started around this time contributing as a group to Linux. So that was another whole community to figure out. So this was sort of mid-2000s. Some of the key developers got quite engaged, and we recognized we needed to have things upstream to be able to sell our silicon. Um, And a couple of years later after that, it was clear that just being upstream was not enough. We actually had to have packaged BSPs in order to sell our silicon on board supports. So we had to have a board support package pulled together and we had to have silicon and we had to have it all fully enabled so that you know our end customers didn't have to do all that lifting themselves. And that was sort of the start of the packaging issues for me, as well as um more of the open source software and learning about okay, these are these packages, hmm, these are these licenses. Hmm. Okay, if we're gonna be, you know, legitimate here and you know, want to ship these BSPs out, we've got to adhere to all these licenses.
0: So what's a PSP?
2: BSP, sorry. Board support package.
0: BSP. And what does that do?
2: It's like a bootloader like you boot. There's usually a cross compiler that's available for it. And then there's a simple user space as well as the Linux kernel. Those generally were the pieces that were packaged together and put on the boards. We actually had a very small distro called LTIP, Linux Target Image Builder, that we came up with ourselves at the time. We looked at using DEBs and we looked at using RPMs. And for that one, we used RPMs. And just basically brought the packages in as RPMs and then assembled them.
0: So the cross compiler allows a user to compile code for their embedded board on their computer. And I guess the board support package basically allows them to move that code onto that board and run it in that environment, right?
2: Yeah, actually, the whole image that you're going to run on your hardware is what you would consider a board support package. And there's usually a device that will flash that image down onto the board for you. So I wouldn't quite call the transition the board support package, it's more the image itself that's been cross compiled. And then that lets you effectively boot up the board and you know communicate to a command line prompt if you've got the right monitors plugged in or the other interfaces activated.
0: And you mentioned before when you were at Motorola and then at Freescale that you were sending patches upstream, both to GCC and to the Linux kernel. What kind of patches were they? What kind of support were you adding?
2: Generally for our silicon, it was PowerPC. And then we also did some work with some of the ARM families later. But it was enablement for the hardware architecture and then optimizations. Then it was enabling the various devices on the operating system. It was just mostly enablement and optimization technology. We didn't really go into, you know, hard changes into the file systems or anything else like that. It was more working with the metal to software interfaces.
1: So you've been working with software and I guess free software for 20 plus years now. How have you seen the industry change over time? And is there any significant things that you think really stand out in that transition over the years?
2: The thing I've been seeing in particular in the last 10 years, I think, is more of the rise of the language-based repositories. Initially, when I was starting, everything was pretty much C and Assembly, and now we have a whole host of other runtime languages. And I was transitioning from Canada to the US. The Java story was just starting, and that has been a major change. I also think that there has become more awareness on licensing as more and more open source becomes available. And there's a lot of misunderstandings about some of the licensing too that have emerged. All the pieces add up and we've got a quite different ecosystem than we had when I started. Uh, When I started, you might have enough pieces to boot up a system, but all the graphics interfaces, all the user interfaces, all of the implied defaults, it was nothing like that. In fact, I got my very first programming job while I was still in school, actually working on an apple and doing a simulation at one of the science museums. And it was, you know, very pixelated resources and so forth. And now, you know, you look at this and you sort of pull a couple blocks together and you can do something that's far more sophisticated than I could have ever done then. So a lot more productivity is there now possible. And with that, there's a lot more, you know, people just put things quickly together and go with it. And that has its strengths and weaknesses.
1: Would you say that people were making most of the software that they were deploying, as opposed to reusing a lot of software back then?
2: When I was starting, it was around the same time Open Source was starting, and the GCC stuff. GCC was really the first part of really reusing other software that you didn't create yourself. Since I was working for IBM, obviously IBM had enough resources that they, you know, had their own compiler. You know, we had a lot of advanced code going into there, and the thing that was sort of amusing for me was about Five to 10 years later, when I was working on compilers for PowerPC with GCC, we were putting some of the same optimizations in place that had gone into the proprietary compilers about 10 years earlier. But since then, it's all pretty much past it. Most people work with GCC or LLVM for compilers these days.
1: And how were you getting this free software?
2: We were getting it through work for the most part, downloading it from our connections. We had open connections at that point in time. It would bring it onto our own workstations. Laptops were not popular at that point. And, you know, you'd work on it pretty much <laughs> nine to five. And then if you needed to work on it, you'd be staying late as opposed to, you know, taking your laptop into the coffee shop.
1: But you're manually pulling down those, was it even zips back then?
2: Yeah, it would be tar balls and zips, mostly.
1: And then just extracting them all and managing all the dependencies yourself.
2: Yeah, you have to remember, though, there really wasn't that many dependencies. At that point in time, most of the things were like, you know, you bring down your whole GNU toolchain and you pull the libraries and the assemblers and you work with it all together there.
0: If I may indulge in nostalgia for a second, I remember some of those older days and having to search fresh meat to find packages and downloading RPMs and tables, which I would extract and run dot slash configure, and it would say, You're missing this particular dependencies. And then I'd go off and try and find that dependency and pull that in. And eventually I would manage to get my original target to build because I'd have to build package C before I could build package B to build my package A.
2: You actually had to do a three iteration set of builds in order to get a proper compiler going, rebuilding the compiler three times because you're using it to build itself.
0: What were those three stages? Can you recall?
2: So you did your initial compile with your host target. And then you compile it yourself to get the library stabilized. And then you compile to get the final version using the new libraries.
1: We have it so easy now.
2: On the other hand, now we have security vulnerabilities. And we have to make sure we get the right version of the packages that don't have these vulnerabilities. And then the interactions all work. And we have all these things to stitch together.
1: Yeah. And then you find out that the latest version of Chrome that has been automatically rolled out to everyone's machines breaks some subtle thing.
2: <laughs> yep. And when you're pulling together a distro, those sorts of things get to be really interesting. (laughs) Like I say, the scope was a lot smaller, and now it's a lot wider, (laughs) to put it mildly.
1: And thinking of the licenses, was there a lot more GPL and copyleft back then, or was there kind of the similar range of licenses that were used?
2: There was fewer licenses. There were the copyleft license family, and then there was the BSD and MIT. And pretty much that's all I Really interacted with initially. Actually, I never really surveyed the actual prevalence of which licenses are dominant in that period of time. But the things that were starting open source were the ones that were under like the GPL and the MIT. And so that's what we ended up using.
0: So we've talked a little bit about the nostalgia and some of the past of software licensing. If we fast forward to today, when software licensing is now your world, what is it you do day to day now?
2: I'd say software licensing is a good part of my world but it's not all of it at this point now what I'm trying to do is figure out how we can actually automate a lot of the licensing stuff to become accurate and working with various other projects like Debian's ecosystem for instance to make sure that when people are reporting licensing for package you're not playing guessing games as much and you are accurate because A lot of people have moved code from one ecosystem to another in order to make neat functionality appear. But when they move it, they bring in the license that the code was originally written under and may or may not have paid attention to it. And so we end up with almost a machine learning type of experiment in order to figure out the licensing on current packages. There's lots and lots and lots of heuristics in the scanners today. Before, I used to do greps and could pretty much get a pretty accurate feel for it as to which licenses I had to adhere to the terms of, things like that. But nowadays, it's gotten beyond the simple greps. And because code has moved from one project to another, just looking at the top-level license isn't necessarily sufficient. What I'm hoping to try to get towards is the fact that we can effectively go back to a grep type of story, or at least have any of the ambiguities removed, and that has to all get solved at Upstream. So one of the things I was working on this last summer, and I'm still—it's going to be a work in progress for a while still—is getting to the stage where each file in the Linux kernel has its license clearly identified, um, with a keyword in front of it, such so that you can grep on that keyword and get a complete listing of all the licenses. And we can do this by the fact that we've got a common license list now via SPDX. And for the Linux kernel itself, there's over 80 licenses in it right now. Now. Licenses that are in test files don't get made into binaries. Documentation doesn't get executed. So the, the rules associated with distributions don't necessarily need to apply, but there are various dual licenses where you have a choice, and then there's also ones where you have to adhere to both. We've just recently gotten, in the last year, some effective open source tools for scanning licenses and generating code out in the same format so that you can compare between tools. Up till this point, it's mostly been the realm of proprietary tools. And so if you didn't have access to these proprietary tools, you were sort of on your own a bit. And you could use physology, but it didn't export anything. And so you really had no good way of comparing from one tool to another tool what was actually happening in the licensing side. Physology recently was able to generate as an output format dep 5, which helped with the Debian community, and then be able to look at what they thought it was and actually start to compare it. We were also able to generate SPDX document format, which has every file signed, which is what the lawyers had wanted to see. Last year, one of the things we did is a full survey of what was happening in Debian with two scanners and compared how many files actually have detectable licenses. And then inside specific packages, you know, what's a breakdown look like? And they're quite different, which makes it pretty clear that we do have a problem with comparing licenses and understanding what's going on there. because. Each of these tools uses different heuristics, and there's no necessarily one right source of truth. And there's lots of inferences that have to be made when you're working through these things. So, the goal it seems to me is that we have to address the problem at root cause rather than adding more and more and more sophistication on top of it. And root cause is what's sitting in the source is not all what's parsable by a license scanner. If you're looking where I want to go in the future, I want to get so we get the source file level accurate, and we can basically have a five second type of grep command that summarizes all the licensing and automatically generate the compliance artifacts to go with it.
0: Before we get into the technical details of licensing and all the nitty gritty, we should probably start with a quick summary of what licensing is and why it matters. Why should software developers care about their software licenses?
2: Sure. So. Software developers, when they write the code uh, and they want to share it with the rest of the world, need to figure out how they want to share it and you know what's important to them in the sharing. You know, If you want to just sort of let people do whatever they want with it and you don't really care that they continue to share it, there's a set of licenses for that. If you want to make sure that if you share your code, whoever uses it shares what they add on to it, that's when we get into copyleft. So it's important to put a license in your code So people don't have to guess. If there's actually no license in the code, it means people can't use it. It means all rights reserved. That's the legal definition of it all. Most people don't really want to think about licensing from a developer perspective, I've found. But it is important to sort of figure out for your own self which philosophy you're coming up behind and what's important to you. Sometimes you have a choice. If you're writing your own project, on your own time, things like that. Sometimes if you're working for someone, they're going to tell you what license they want the code under. As In exchange for your salary, or if you're working and contributing to a project, it's already got a license, and you have to contribute it under that license, so they won't take the code in
0: and I guess companies also have their own concerns.
2: yeah, companies obviously some of them have their own proprietary licenses, some of them want to dual license things so that they can use the same code in a proprietary project as well as out in open source. There is a fair number of options out there, and they've been growing over the years.
0: The particular thing I was trying to prompt you towards there was about the risks of accidentally incorporating something with an open license into software. And then like, if someone uses OSS uh, or open source code in a proprietary project, they might have just created a little landmine for their company.
2: Yeah, uh, I'd say that happens, although we probably don't hear about it that much. (laughs) But yes, and that's where some of the commercial scanners like Black Duck that have these massive databases of code. And companies will, before they ship a proprietary project out, will sit there and scan and look for that. But as I was sort of talking earlier about code moving from one project to another, yeah, these sorts of things happen a lot. Nowadays, for open source projects, in some senses, it's less of an issue other than you have to come up with the compliance artifacts that are associated with a license um, if you want to ship it. And some licenses are just not compatible with each other. You can't mix them. So these are all areas that you know, one needs to keep an eye on and curate to make sure that there isn't going to be problems down the road.
1: Is there a place that you can go and find as a developer, or someone new to using open source, find out about the basics of licensing and avoid the pitfalls that are potentially waiting for you?
2: The Linux Foundation has a free online course called Compliance Basics for Developers that I participated in creating. And it goes through the history of licensing, but then focuses on how you actually form a copyright properly, how you choose a license properly, and basically what are the file headers like. That's about a one-hour online free course if someone wants to take it. There's also resources like Choose a License, which is a site that lets you explore licenses in terms of the properties you want. That lets you sort of determine what rights you care about and then helps guide you towards a license that might be useful. Recently, Google has been pretty good about adding in licensing onto the projects, and I think that's really helping the ecosystem a lot.
1: So we've got a reasonable amount of standardization in the world of licenses compared to, say, a different industry where every contract is written up on demand. How do you think that's come about?
2: Well, I think as more and more open source becomes pervasive and it's under a limited set of licenses. I think it's easier for people to keep doing what they're doing. One of the interesting you know, implications that just happened recently is FreeRTOS was acquired by Amazon, and it was under the uh, GPL. And by acquiring it, and because of the terms of the contributions for it, they relicensed it into a permissive license. The trouble was that there was a slight glitch when they redid that. At the top level was fine, but in the files... They had inserted another sentence, which all of a sudden made it a different license. And they've since fixed that. But just changing a few words in these license texts causes new licenses to effectively emerge. So keeping license proliferation for gratuitous reasons down is obviously something that people are starting to focus more on because there's an advantage to the standardization that has emerged and that you can then start to automate it, and you know what the terms are, and there's a rough common understanding of what people need to do to comply to the license. When things roll a lot of the entity open source licenses, um, you know, there's extra scrutiny that has to go on before you use it. To give you a bit of a feel for the time involved in doing this job right, there's a process, they call it clearing, a uh, package before you can ship it, and that means going through and doing a review of all the licenses in it, And the licensing in it for something like the Linux kernel takes about two weeks of someone's using a tool scanner and then going through and resolving the things that are ambiguous. You may want to put some changes in to the code base and that takes you, oh, a day or two. But then if you want to go and ship that out and actually have the full compliance artifact suite to go with it, that may take you two other weeks of someone who has been trained in uh, licensing to some extent going through it. And resolving the ambiguities they see in the code. So they have to have pretty specialized skills of being able to read the code as well as understand the licensing regimes. That's where, for me, it seems like we've gone in the wrong direction. <laughs> the licensing should just be automatic.
1: It sounds like someone could combine their salary of like computer scientist and lawyer.
2: Yeah, like I say, when I was doing this as a manager, so I obviously had, you know, a software development background. And then I pretty much picked up working with the legal team on the fly. What keywords they key (laughs) not in terms of, oh, watching, it's a whole different language here, and there are certain words that you do not use that I would use in common speech that actually have a legal meaning in their context. So you had to sort of go between these two knowledge domains and try to figure out how to express this. And it was a couple years of a learning exercise, and I found mostly the people who had the sensitivity are those who potentially had gone through lawsuits or have been senior developers and working with lawyers for a long time. We had a concept when I was at Freescale called Trusted Advisors, and those were the ones that the lawyers knew that they could go to and would get people being able to tell them roughly what licenses really were key. A lot of the lawyers didn't have the skill set to read the code or the background to read the code. Now that's changed too. There's a lot more lawyers right now that are coming in from more of a computer science type of background or are able to read the code or have hobby projects on their own. So the lawyers are actually getting more computer savvy and the computer science people, after they've been exposed a lot, are sensitive to what's important. But it is an interesting intersection of domains. That's all I can say.
0: You mentioned permissive licenses and vanity licenses. What are those?
2: Sure. A permissive license is a license that lets you use the code but does not necessarily enforce that you need to share the code back. You need to basically say where you got the code from and who you got it from, whoever created the code, the copyright holder generally, and make that visible. For vanity licenses, what you need to do depends on the person who wrote the license. An example of this one might be the beerware license, where it says, uh, you're free to do whatever you want to do with this code, as long as when you see me, you can buy me a beer. Now that sort of license is kind of fun to read and gives everyone a good chuckle. On the other hand, if you're a poor compliance person and you're trying to figure out, okay, now how do I intersect this person and buy them a beer? It becomes a little bit more, you know, interesting. Now the person obviously didn't mean for everyone to hunt them down and buy them a beer. It was more, I think, meant as a joke in the sense of, if you see me at a conference, buy me a beer. But that would be an example I would consider a value license. The other one might be something like, oh, I'm a large company We've done things different than everyone else. Therefore, we have to have our license this way, which happens too. It's an open source license or a close to open source license, but it has company specifics, names in it, and their little concern points addressed in it.
0: One thing which has been interesting for me looking at the open source world over the past couple of years is the idea of patent indemnification being included in licenses. I think Facebook might be a good example of this, where I think they say or used to say, You can use React and you can use it in your own projects on this open source basis, but if you use it, you can't sue Facebook for any patent infringement. We'll allow you to use our stuff and we're not going to sue you for any infringements, but you also can't come back to us. Have you seen examples of that? Do you think that's becoming more prevalent?
2: Well, I'd say that people are more sensitive to patents these days, definitely, and you'll have seen a rise probably of more use of the Apache license in various open source projects. And the reason that companies are sort of going towards that direction is so that they don't have to have the worries about the licensing and the fact that people might be coming after them with patents because you're only allowed to use it as long as you don't go after people in that direction. On the other hand, you're seeing people take code that was open source, put it under sort of like a BSD license, but have a patent sitting there. You can go use it as much as you want, but if you want protection against the patents that are associated with this code, you have to buy our version. And so you're seeing that type of business model emerge, which is a bit worrying to me. The GPL has sort of an implicit patent grant in it, but I'm not enough of an expert in this area that I really want to comment more than that. It's more of a gray area with the GPL, how the patent side of it works. GPL 3 is pretty clear, but earlier is implicit, I think. But on the Apache side, that tends to be generally a safe choice. And so you're seeing more of the Apache licensing showing up. We were talking a few minutes ago about FreeRTOS, and they took FreeRTOS from a GPL license into a permissive one. And if you actually go on the website, if you want to make sure you're safe from the patents that are associated there, you have to actually buy the Safer RTOS, which is their version that's been scrubbed further. So people are making different type of business models. Is it good or is it bad? I don't know. <laughs> it has advantages in the sense that it provides people with jobs. On the other hand, it does restrict the amount of sharing down.
0: Andrew, you recently sold a company. Did any software licensing
1: issues crop up during that process? Uh, yes. I guess so. So, libraries is now part of Tidelift. Basically, I transferred my copyright of the code that I wrote in libraries, which is probably 95% of it. But libraries is licensed under the AGPL. I like to call it the aggressive GPL, like network equivalent of it. And we've kept it under the same license. So, Effectively, we didn't need to reach out to other contributors and get them to assign their copyright over to us. So it it kind of skimmed a lot of those issues. If we decided in that process we wanted to change the license, then we would have had to reach out to each individual contributor and get their approval to also change that license. And if they had said no, I guess we could have either offered them money or actually removed their contributions. But We avoided doing all of that by keeping it under the same license and keeping it all open source. And the plan is to continue to develop libraries in the open. So I don't think I've run into the same kind of problems that a lot of people would have, but I've heard some horror stories where people go into that kind of due diligence process and then realize that they've been building on top of some GPL code that... As essentially, they've been shipping that product out to someone else. And if that license was viral into their own code, they're left in a situation where they have to back all of those things out. But all of the code that they've already shipped has already, like, essentially been available under that copyleft license, which is kind of the worst case scenario, I think, at, at the moment. I think there's probably two points.
2: Point one is on the distribution. If you're using something just internally, it doesn't much matter. Well, it does matter, but the risk levels are lower. But when you distribute, then there's you know different obligations that get triggered. And when you're actually being acquired, that's when your internal hygiene practices get called into question. So licensing is important to get right and I think the solution for getting it right is to you know just sort of keep on top of it. So anytime you bring a new piece of code in, look at the license that's coming in with that code and just make sure you're reflecting it accurately. Do not remove the license header. Do not take and strip things out because tools will find that. It's also not ethical, quite frankly. But if you're bringing a file in from another project and there's no header for the license in that file, take and put a header for the license and say where you've got the source from so that people can trace it back. If you sort of, Keep that up to place, and then you have an accurate manifest for each package of all the licenses that are there associated with that package, and just keep it up to date on every build. I think you won't get these surprises down the road, but we really haven't been doing that level up till now, other than in large companies. And I think for open source projects, making sure that we start to have tooling for the upstream projects like Debian and others to use, to accurately have the licenses summarized on every build and just keep the license data up to date create, every time you create a, you know executable. If we can go in that direction, I think we're going to get rid of a lot of these problems and these late surprises when you go to you know, sell off your company or you're merging in with someone else.
1: Bringing it around to package managers, especially the kind of newer application-level package managers, there's often a field on the metadata for that package, you can declare the license or licenses. Uh, I've seen a trend where quite a number of people use that field alone to declare the license and don't actually add a license file or even just adding kind of the SPDX identifier to the bottom of their readme. Is that enough legally to say, we can be sure that this project is available under that license or... Is there a hard requirement of, say, having the license full text within the package?
2: So one point is I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) I'm a developer, manager, whatever that path is. So I can't put a lawyer hat on. I do work with a lot of lawyers, though, at the foundation and other places. So most of what you're getting from me is by osmosis and from a developer perspective. If you can unambiguously identify what license is intended to be in effect, that tends to be sufficient. So, when you're scanning a code base, if it just has some information in the metadata format, the assumption is it applies to every file. The challenge is if you're moving files from one package to another and you're not paying attention to the metadata when you're bringing in some source files, you can inadvertently change the license without meaning to. Like I say, if you've written everything from scratch yourself and you have the metadata and you don't expect people to pull files from you, just having it in one place, as long as the tooling can find it's sufficient. Each tooling has different sets of capabilities of working with the metadata. If you're using an unambiguous identifier that has a definition in a findable place, like the SPDX identifiers, SPDX stands for Software Package Data Exchange. And there's a license list that started with about 80 licenses, which was representing about 90% of all the software, open source software we were finding at that time, which was in about 2010. That list has grown to about 300 licenses now. And there's little short identifiers associated with each license. If you code those in, there's a site that you can actually find the definition of each of those identifiers and there's a programmable interface into them. And so if you're using that, it tends to be very unambiguous. Certain licenses call for you to use the actual full header that they provide. Best practice is probably to stick the full header in and then put a one-line identifier to make it clear in case you put some typos into your header that you really meant this one. But the one-line identifier, most of the lawyers I've been working with are comfortable with that, and most of the developers I've been working with are also comfortable because it doesn't quite frankly clutter up the code with a lot of boilerplate. Various projects have various levels of discipline and scripting associated with accepting the licensing. So the Apache Foundation, you don't get out of your incubator until you're all licensing clean at the file level. The FSF projects are very good about having the appropriate GNU identifiers in their file level too. Some of the new repositories that are using things with metadata, they are assuming that putting it in one place is sufficient. And I think that's where we're finding lots of problems, especially when you start tracing in chain dependencies that are brought in without recognition. And in some cases, you have incompatible licenses being brought in through that chaining of dependencies too. So if you can put like a one-line SPDX identifier in the file level, I think that's a good minimum. If your community you're working with wants to have the full header, that's also good too. Key is to make sure it's automatically recognizable and unambiguous.
1: So it's interesting that you mentioned dependencies. We seem to talk about it in every single episode. When it comes to licenses and dependencies, As you mentioned earlier, there are some licenses that are directly conflicting with other licenses. Do you think there's any kind of responsibility at the package manager level to be warning users about what potential license issues that they're pulling down as they are installing or deploying their packages?
2: Yeah. And I think several systems, I know like in Ubuntu and in Debian, like say Ubuntu came from Debian. so. They inherited a lot of the good practices from Debian. If you're not using a free and open source software license, it does call it out and it does put it into a separate spot so you have some awareness of it. From a package management perspective, I think it's important to identify packages that you're using and the licensing associated with them. I think that's probably where the boundary is. Up to the people who are using them, it's their choice which licenses they want to use. But you have to make it transparent to them what their choice is there's certain functionality that's not available in free software licenses right now and people want to use it and I'm not going to stop them from using it but I do want to let them know that they're using software that is under a different license it's a hidden dependencies I think they're the biggest problems right now
0: I've always liked Debian's approach to the non-free software and Ubuntu have do the same thing, where they put all of that in a completely separate repository. So if you do want to use that software, you have to go in and edit your list of sources to pull from. And it's generally called non-free. My exposure to this is mostly when I've installed Linux on a desktop and I want to listen to MP3s or I want to watch a movie. And all of those codecs are... I think it's less about the copyright on the code and more about the patents that could be involved, but you have to go in and comment those out and then you can pull down those non-free codecs and be able to play those files.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of how Debian's done things as well. I could see that we might want to even sort of separate the license families a little bit between themselves so that so you're not mixing the permissive and the GPL inadvertently. But at the package level, as long as the licensing is clear and it's open source, We've pretty much worked around it.
0: So we mentioned SPDX, which are these identifiers you can embed in your source code or in your readme, which identify the license on that particular source file or package. What other tools and technologies exist to help developers handle some of this licensing automatically?
2: So initially, when I was at Freescale, and was trying to figure out how I could share the information that I was finding from my scans with my colleagues in different companies like Wind River and Montevista. Vista at the time. We really didn't have a good way of sharing the information and sharing our summaries. About the same time, Debian was coming up with DEP5 as a way of summarizing the licensing. I wasn't aware of it because most of the stuff I was working with at that point was RPMs. And what I did was looking at the problem and starting to talk to people it came up that we sort of needed to have something called package facts, and we had to have a standard format for exchanging these facts about packages. I gave a talk in New Zealand at one of the LCA conferences, and in that conference, one of the audience basically pointed me at Debian in step five. And I started looking at that and went, Oh, this is really close, really good. And then I went, I took it back to my lawyer in the company and they went, well, how do I know it hasn't changed out from underneath you? How do I know that people are keeping it up to date on every build? And I went, hmm, yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) And so the initial start of SPDX, which is Software Package Data Exchange as a format, it's effectively a schema for expressing information about files, expressing information about packages. You can go down to snippets. You can go down to licenses that aren't on the license list and so forth. So it's a language for being able to exchange information with others. And it's very similar to DEP5 in one of its formats, but you can also interchange it into RDF, which is a lot of the tool vendors wanted. They want to be able to pull things in with RDF to make them into the pretty interfaces. It's machine readable and human readable, and you can interchange between tag value and RDF. And for the lawyers, you can go right to spreadsheets too. Now, in recent years, the JSON and YAML have become much more popular Because it's a schema, we can translate to those formats. So we're using some libraries, and we'll probably put out versions of uh, translation tools that work with, you know, JSON, as well as um, go back to RDF and go to the tag value. But having these languages that let you express the information in a standard format means that it then becomes queryable, and then tools can be written to help generate it, as well as once you actually detect a license, and you know what the terms of the license are, you can write tools to then go and fulfill the obligations of the license. People are starting to write these tools this year. Some of it's in the SPDX tools part of the project. There's various pseudocodes on how to take and transform documents, an SPDX document, for instance, into a more standard notification file. But the more we can standardize on the sort of underpinnings in a language to communicate this information, and the tools are all talk that language, the faster it gets for everyone to use it and compare. At the heart, it really is, okay, what's a license? What's a copyright? And you know, where did I get this package from? And if you can identify that and have the signing, then we can sort of go from there.
1: It's a bit of shameless self-promotion. I have written a couple of tools built on top of the SPDX standard, mostly for use in libraries.io, but they are being used elsewhere as well. The first one is a fuzzy matcher for the SPDX identifiers. And that basically will try and go, okay, well, you've written Apache 2 with no 0.0 on the end. And I can try and normalize those different kinds of ways that people would write the name of the license back down into the SPDX identifier because many people will write GPL in subtly different ways than the exact format that SPDX specifies. The other library that I've written, which seemed to get a lot of discussion from some lawyers and licensed people. I'm not sure if it's used anywhere else yet, but we're looking to use it in dependency CI fairly soon is a thing called license compatibility, which essentially groups the set of licenses into different groups of similar kind of quality. So public domain being almost no restrictions whatsoever. So things like CC0 and the unlicensed license, and then permissive, which are things like Apache 2, MIT, the WTFPL, and then weak copyleft, strong copyleft, and network copyleft. And what the license basically allows you to do is say, does this spdx identifier work with this other spdx identifier so can i depend upon apache 2 if my code is licensed as mit and it's not so much useful for your own code directly but for introspecting these long dependency chains and seeing okay, well, I know all of the licenses of all the things in my dependency tree. Are there any things further down the tree that are going to cause me issues where essentially something is not quite correctly licensed? And it's tricky. Uh, The other thing that it doesn't take into account is how does that relate to different forms of proprietary usage and distribution as well? But at least when it comes to comparing different pieces of open source and their dependencies, it's turned out to be a a handy way of looking for those kind of foot gun moments.
2: Very cool. I'll have to go and start checking that out. But yeah, once you have a language underneath, you can write these sorts of tools and help extend the knowledge and make it easier for others, which I think is just excellent. A similar project I know of is some work that was done out of the University of Cyprus on checking the dependencies on the licensing as well and the interaction between licensing. And I know that this is an active topic of interest um, in the legal community, so I'm not surprised when you say that you've got a lot of feedback on it. Mostly because people are sort of exploring what does this really mean and what are the implications when you start chaining all these things together. In the container space in particular, there's a lot of interest as to what does it all mean and what are the obligations. And these are all areas that we're going to be exploring over the next year.
1: It feels like there's a lot of context that needs to be applied whenever you ask about license usage. So if you have no context, you can't really know all of the results of those particular licenses and the effects they have until you say, oh, I'm deploying this on embedded devices and shipping them around the world or potentially even the countries that those licenses apply to. I guess generally we talk about US licensing laws, but are there any differences in different countries that could potentially come into effect?
2: I I think this is probably where we should, we should probably talk to someone who's actually in, in the legal sphere who studies this stuff. I do know that there are variants of licenses. that are specific to countries and... There are translations of licenses, which are one thing, and then it's a question of whether people recognize that translation is valid or not. But there are also variants of certain licenses that are different. Some of these differences come about because of the history of copyright and where it sort of started. A lot of copyrights uh, started in Britain. And then when America split off from the Commonwealth, the actual Declaration of Independence actually talks about copyright in it. Because it's sort of enshrined right in the Declaration of Independence, I think that's probably why there's probably more focus in some ways on it in the United States. And a lot of the GPL stuff originated at MIT and with Stallman's work for the copyleft licensing regimes. And the motion towards copyleft was really a large part of the start of the awareness of licensing. And then we had the BSD, which was also from a university in the US. And so since these are some of the dominant licenses, that's probably why we hear about it more. But there is licensing um, that is specific to certain countries. It just seems that the predominant number are coming from licenses that sort of originated in the US.
1: Yeah, I think the main one I hear about that can potentially trip you up is the public domain because some countries don't have a concept of putting something into the public domain and making it have no copyright restrictions.
2: Yes, good point. You're completely right. And there's also different treatments of what's worked for hire and in the common good varies from country to country as well.
1: So I think the takeaway here is if any of this is a concern to you or has made you think, maybe I should look into this further, definitely speak to a Copyright or open source licensed lawyer rather than getting all of your advice from a podcast.
2: (laughs) Completely agree. (laughs) Completely agree.
0: If people need to find an open source slash copyright lawyer, how does somebody go about finding that kind of person?
2: Well, if you are working for a company, talk to your in house counsel and make it their problem. If you're working on an open source upstream project, there are a lot of lawyers that sort of are interacting with the communities. Some of them do pro bono effectively. If you're working specifically in certain licensed domains, like if you're working in the copy left, there's obviously the FSF to uh, reach out to and to be put in touch with their lawyer if there's something that's ambiguous. If you're working with the Apache Foundation, they also have a set of lawyers that they sort of work with. Then beyond that, I think it's a matter of looking for a lawyer that you would trust. The opinion of that knows something about the area you're, you're concerned about. I don't think we've, there's a nice registry, unfortunately, of lawyers. So it's a matter of digging a little bit, I'm afraid. There are certain lawyers that have you know spoken out about these topics. There's a legal and licensing track at Fosdem that does a really good job of talking about these sorts of topics. And you'll find a lot of the lawyers that are knowledgeable in the space showing up there. So I think that's probably the best intersect between the open source community and the legal community is actually some of those tracks at FOSDEM. There's other lawyers in the U.S. that have spoken publicly about these types of issues. Heather Meekers comes to mind. And obviously, some of the ones at the foundation are interested, but they all have to be careful because they're not your lawyer, necessarily. Some of them start their talks with, you know, I am not a lawyer or I am not your lawyer, things like that. And your mileage may vary, but if you're working within a licensed family, I'd sort of look for the lawyers that work in that family to get advice from.
1: One person that springs to mind is Kyle Mitchell, who's done a good amount of work around the MPM licensing space as well. And I'm working with Lewis Villa, who is no longer a practicing lawyer, but you can reach him on Twitter and we'll put links to the show notes um, for recommendations. I'm sure he'll love me sending lots of people asking for lawyer recommendations.
2: (laughs) Completely agree. Kyle is awesome as is Lewis. I've worked with both of them over the last few years and they've done great work. They're lawyers, but they are intersecting into the software domain. There's a variety of lawyers. Uh, Karen Copenhaver has been helping me with understanding Linux issues for several years now, but, uh, it's a matter of are they in the community and can they are they approachable I guess because they too have to make a living and so it's you know the amount of pro bono is interesting but the ones who are in the community and interacting with the software are, are a good starting point definitely.
0: Andrew mentioned before that he has heard some software licensing horror stories when talking about selling his company. Are there any? stories or issues that have cropped up that keep you up at night what are your favorite horror stories
2: my favorite horror stories are basically dealing with tooling that when you compare it to other tooling does not give the same answer and we need to start building up trust in the tooling for this stuff because the things that keep me up at night are the mess that it's all in as overall you know when you see phrases like this file basically was copyright statement a company name a year all good and then GPL apostrophe D. Okay, which version of the GPL do you really mean there? And then, you know, the Linux kernel also has the module identifiers that have been defined in a spot in the GPL. It mean when you see module license GPL, that means it could be GPL two or later, is actually what it means. Whereas if you see GPL, when you're seeing it in the top of a header, it means that it is any version of the GPL is the interpretation you have to take. So it's The mapping between, you know, written language and what is actually meant, that area is my nightmare these days. You know, people are thinking about machine learning types of approaches for approaching licensing, and that's kind of why I'm kind of keen on, let's see if we can solve this at the source and just put an identifier in there so it's unambiguous. The Linux kernel itself is like, oh gosh, about 50,000 files, and the rate of change is tremendous in it, and so... Getting it to, get to the stage where we can you know, do a grep and get an accurate summary of the license is my goal here. But the rate of change interacts with these open source projects. And so you might get it clean for a point in time, but you want to figure out how to sustain it being clean.
0: This is more of a hypothetical problem, I expect, than a real problem. But C and C++ allows you to... Add define statements or if def statements, which are processed by the preprocessor. And you can do things in those like pull in certain header files or pull in certain other files based on the flags you pass to your compiler. So I imagine you could use that if you were feeling evil to create some software that changed its licensing depending on which flags you compiled it with. And if you're distributing just source only, then... I could imagine that causing somebody some horrible headaches when it's like you know what license the various bits of the source are but the actual build output could be indeterminate depending on your developer.
2: Uh, No, these sorts of things definitely happen and this is why we've got the binary analyzers that go through binaries and look for breadcrumbs in terms of the copyright and licensing information that's been included in the binaries. The ways that people can mess things up is remarkable. But most people, luckily, are just trying to do the right thing and trying to keep it as low overhead as possible. So that's the thing that gives me hope in this space.
0: One of the things that I find very interesting is when these things do come to court and you get to see, quote unquote, normal people trying to get their head around the open source world. The example I'm thinking of in this case is the Oracle versus Google Android fight about whether what is an API and whether it's covered by copyright or if it's something which can be copied. And I remember there was a fun little extract, which we can link up in the show notes about the judge trying to get their head around the fact that GNU stands for GNU's not Unix and saying that doesn't make any sense.
2: Oh, yeah, it's definitely a specialized domain. Talking to my mom, I don't think she really understands it (laughs) sometimes when I'm talking to her about these sorts of things. On the other hand, she's able to use Ubuntu. And it does the right thing because the package managers have made it easy. So getting it to the stage where we can make it as easy for people to just do the right thing is a definite goal.
1: An area that I'm, I'm kind of glad we haven't touched on is the whole smart contracts movement built on top of Ethereum. I'm kind of afraid that someone may try to put some kind of executable licensing on a smart contract and open even more tins of worms there. But I think that's definitely a conversation for another day.
2: Indeed. One of the things that I'm seeing start to emerge in the supply chain is the sharing of the licensing information as it passes from one stage in the supply chain to another stage, possibly via a hyperledger type of technology. There's one project that's emerging called SPARTS. And that is basically combining using the SPX documents with the software in an envelope and that gets signed. And so you can sort of say, this is what I've shipped and I'm passing it on to the next person. And you can then get more accurate provenance. And I think that's a direction we'll probably be heading towards as software replaces hardware in the supply chain, you know, things where your life depends on it, like cars, getting the more accurate provenance for your software and making sure there's not vulnerabilities associated with it, I think is is crucial. And there's various projects and people thinking in these directions right now in terms of how we can get this to be more reproducible and documented and people can cross-check it and start to trust it. This also plays nicely with the concept of reproducible builds and making sure that if you've got the software, you can reproduce it. And so the licensing is sort of secondary in some people's minds to that, but if you can generate accurate licensing and make sure you're adhering to the obligations as well as knowing exactly when your their security vulnerabilities and things like that and you have the full traceability, I think that's
1: good for everyone. So Kate, where can we find more about you online if people want to contact you or see the work that you're doing?
2: If you mail to the SPDX tech list, I'm always pretty much hanging out on that one. Stuart at Linux.com is the... Simple way of getting in touch with me by email. I'm on Twitter as well. You can pretty much find me in areas where we're talking about licensing with various projects. So happy to answer questions or tell you when I can't answer a question and try to point you at someone who can.
1: And is that also the best place to go if you want to get involved in contributing to the SPDX project?
2: Yeah, SPDX Tech for anyone who's interested in the technology and development. There's also, we have an SPDX Legal mail list. And there's a group of lawyers that are actually hanging out there. I probably should have referenced that one earlier, actually, as a spot to find lawyers that know about open source. If you go to the spdx.org site and follow the links down, you'll find the tech team and information on when we meet. And we also find the legal team and information on when they meet, as well as a mail list to subscribe to. I'd also say that the Debian community has a lot of people who are interested in these types of topics, too. And there's you a know, fair amount of
0: discussion there as well. Great. Thank you so much for coming on and talking all about licensing and telling us all about some of this history. It's been really interesting hearing about some of the ins and outs and the various complications that can arise and the tooling that can help us get out of the pits that we dig ourselves. Thank you very much, guys. I've enjoyed the chat. And that wraps everything up for this episode. We'll be back soon with more talk of package managers and the open source world. Bye for now. Bye.